You're listening to the Strategies at Work podcast for March 2020. Today's episode is titled, Knowing the Will of God Isn't Enough. Knowing God's will about a matter is necessary, but not sufficient. Organizational leadership must learn how to execute God's will according to God's ways. Therefore, organizational leaders must be both students and practitioners of divine precepts, and they must also develop spiritual discernment to know how to execute God's will when explicit biblical guidance is not provided. This requires developed spiritual wisdom and discernment that is a mark of excellent leadership. And now Dr. Chester brings us the message titled, Knowing the Will of God Isn't Enough. Well, good morning. This morning we'd like to have a discussion out of Galatians chapter 4, verses 21 through 31. And the title of the message today is Old Testament Typology. In this section of chapter 4, the Apostle Paul utilized Old Testament typology to conclude his argument about being righteous with God and how it's not based on human works, but on the grace of God. One of the reasons for confusion on this point is that Christianity is not a ritual-based religion. Rather, it offers an eternal relationship with the Creator. From this relationship, Christians derive and practice a holistic, life-defining worldview. This means that a Christian's lifestyle reflects a life-defining relationship with Christ. Christ, then, is the Lord of everything in our lives. Now, some may assert this understanding to intimate a works-based salvation, but Paul didn't. In the last two verses of chapter 2, he stated with firm conviction that living as a servant of Christ does not change the truth that salvation is based on grace. True obedience to Christ is the proper response of gratitude for the grace of Christ. The basis for a believer's salvation is the grace of Christ alone. But the evidence that you've received that grace of Christ now is a heart of gratitude that leads to a life of obedience. Now, having stated this cogently in Galatians chapter 2, verses 20 and 21, chapter 3, then Paul launches into a two-chapter apologetic against his opponents who claim salvation based on human works. Paul began with rhetorical questions dealing with the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit in regeneration as the originator and sustainer of the process of salvation. He noted that Abraham was justified by faith, not works. Therefore, the true sons of Abraham are people of faith. They are saved by faith. Therefore, he argued that to be saved by law required perfect obedience to the law, an impossible standard for depraved human human beings. He clarified that the promised Abrahamic blessing was the gospel of grace. The unconditional promise preceded the conditional law, but the law did not alter the promise. The inheritance, that is righteous standing before God, came by promise, not by law. In chapter 3, verse 19, Paul posed a very seminal question. Why then the law? If the law is not the means to effect salvation, why the law? The remainder of the chapter addressed this question. The purpose of the law was to convict mankind of mankind's total inability, total impotency, total depravity in terms of being able to save himself. Mankind can never do good good enough works, enough good works to be able to merit 
favor with God. So let's be clear, there's nothing wrong with the law as a standard of righteousness. The law is perfect. The problem was, and always has been, and always will be, the human condition. The purpose of the law was to reveal human depravity and to prepare the way for the full revelation of the grace of God through Christ. Chapter 4 begins with imagery of adoption to convey the positional truth of being in Christ. True sons of God display faith in Christ as evidence that they have received the grace of Christ. Also, true sons of God are baptized into Christ and put on Christ. Baptism refers to our position in Christ. The imagery of putting on clothing conveyed a lifestyle of being sustained in Christ. This is a sanctification process, growing up, maturing, developing in Christ. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 19, Paul stated that the empowerment for human obedience is, it comes through sanctification, and that empowerment comes through the Holy Spirit working in us. This is an asymptotic process of Christ being formed in us. However, obedience to Christ is not the basis for being in Christ. Rather, obedience to Christ is evidence of being in Christ. Continuing the adoption theme, Paul argued in chapter 4, that those who are adopted into the family of God must be trained to live as true sons and daughters of God. In other words, adoption is a sovereign work of God affected through regeneration. But sanctification is a process of transformation and maturity that requires the formation of Christ and those who are positionally in Christ. Paul concluded chapter 4 with his final argument against the Judaizers. The Judaizers were the ones who were claiming that to be a Christian, you had to obey the law of Moses. And Paul made it very clear to be a Christian, you had to receive the grace of God through Christ. That's what a Christian really is. But the Judaizers were there opposing Paul on every front, positing obedience to the law as the basis for right standing with God instead of the Pauline gospel of the grace of Christ. Using the imagery now of Abraham's two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. By the way, they were not the only sons of Abraham, but they're the ones that are in view here. Paul argued that being under the law as a means of salvation is bondage to sin and death, but being saved by the grace of Christ is freedom from sin and death. So let's read the text, Galatians chapter 4, uh, verse 21 through 31. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? That is a rhetorical question with implied answer. Well, yeah, they do listen to the law. And so now Paul's going to build on that. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These two women are two covenants. In other words, they represent two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is slavery with her children. She is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she's our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one, who does not bear, break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than those who are the one who has a husband. Now you, my brothers, 
like Isaac are children of promise. But just as at the time when he who bore was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Continuing his battle with the Judaizers, Paul issued an imperative. The imperative was, tell me, you who are willing to be under the law. That is a command. Tell me. In the context, the term law referred to the Pentateuch or the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, which was a common way to use the word law. Though the Galatians knew the singular gospel of the grace of Christ, they listened to Judaizers who taught obedience to the Mosaic law as a basis for being a Christian, and that is a basis for being right with God. Though the Galatians knew the truth, that right standing with God was through grace in Christ alone, they were not grounded in that truth and were easily influenced by the heresy of the Judaizers. Paul's final argument against the false gospel of the Judaizers was an appeal to typology from the Old Testament. You see, for now two chapters, Paul has been arguing against the Judaizers and their gospel. So he's concluding a whole series of arguments against their gospel. To make his argument, Paul used the virtue of integrity. That is, his disciples would listen to and be persuaded by the truth from the law. While they claimed to follow this law, they certainly would be submitted to an argument from this law. Verses 22 and 23 set up the story. As students of the Torah, the story of Abraham was familiar to these early disciples. Sarai, who was Abraham's wife, was unable to bear a child and fulfill the multi-generational Abrahamic promise, which included the blessing for all the world. This was Genesis 12, 1 through 3. And Paul explains that that blessing was salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone. He explained that in Galatians chapter 3. Now, seeking to find a way to fulfill God's promise, Sarah schemed. In other words, Sarah recognized that the promise of this blessing was going to be multi-generational, that she and Abraham wouldn't be the direct agents, they would be the indirect agents. So it would be their heirs that would then be the agents of that blessing. And so she's trying to figure out how to have an heir because she's childless. So she schemed to produce an heir through her handmaiden, an Egyptian slave by the name of Hagar. Now what, what basically Abraham and, and uh, Sarai did was the same thing that Adam and Eve did in the garden. And that is when Eve concocted a plan of sin, Adam complied. Well, you have exactly the same thing here. Sarai concocts a plan of sin, immorality, and Abraham replied. But when Hagar bore that son, Sarah regretted it. She knew it had been made a big mistake because, in part, Hagar challenged, changed in her attitude towards Sarah and began to despise her. You can see this in Genesis 16, verses 2 through 4 and verse 15. In time, Sarah's name, which meant prince, was changed to Sarah, which meant mother of nations. That is, Sarai to Sarah. Then Sarah was empowered to conceive a child, Isaac. Genesis 21, verses 1 and, uh, 1 and 2 and verse 10 lay this out, that in her old age, God 
opened up her womb and she bore a son Isaac and in verse 10 she says this to Abraham as she's watching how Ishmael is disdaining Isaac she said to Abraham cast out this bondwoman and her son for the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son Isaac Ishmael which means God listens and Isaac which means God laughs were both heirs of Abraham but the promise Abrahamic blessing was to go through Isaac Abraham was troubled by his by Sarah's demand and the Lord directed him to listen and do as she requested Genesis 21 verse 12 says but God said to Abraham do not be displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman whatever Sarah says to you do as she tells you for though Isaac shall you through Isaac shall your offspring be named Ishmael was a type of one born according to the flesh which represented an attempt to fulfill the promise of God that is the will of God apart from the ways of God that's a very important distinction anytime we seek to perform the will of God apart from the ways of God we are in the flesh this is a wonderful definition of what it means to be in the flesh when you have a, a revelation of the will of God and you seek to fulfill the will of God according to your own ways that is called in the flesh and likewise if you seek to do the will of God according to the ways of God that would be called in the spirit in contrast Isaac was born according to promise that is the will of God was executed according to the ways of God so Isaac is the the prototypical example of alignment with God his will done his ways and consequently God fulfilled his promise through Isaac whose lineage would include ultimately Jesus who would be the direct agent of the blessing promised through the Abrahamic covenant Ishmael and Isaac represented two ways of, of doing the will of God that is the ways of man or the ways of God the ways of the flesh or the ways of the spirit Paul correlated the flesh with the old covenant and the spirit with the new covenant the old covenant was conditional because it required human obedience to the Mosaic law so from the very beginning there was no way that the Mosaic law was ever going to be able to produce righteousness in man because man was totally depraved but the new covenant which is based on the Abrahamic promise was unconditional because it was based on God's promise nothing was required of man it was a promise from God that he would do this unilaterally the comparison here is allegorical in the sense that both Ishmael and Isaac are types or examples or illustrations they represent two approaches for attaining right standing with God one by human works and the other by grace in verse 25 Paul continued his imagery comparing Hagar to Mount Sinai which is where the law was given the Decalogue was given to Moses on Mount Sinai Hagar was the mother of Ishmael Mount Sinai was a place where Moses received the Decalogue Hagar was also compared to Jerusalem that ancient capital of Israel in the promised land that was devastated by the Babylonians because of the sin of Israel but initially enjoyed great glory Mount Sinai represented the giving of the law and the and Jerusalem represented both the gift of promise the promised land that was the glory and the failure of Israel to be faithful to God that was the desolation and destruction of, of Jerusalem Hagar and her heirs symbolized slavery 
bondage to sin and death. This is the way of the law that requires fallen humans to perfectly obey. If you are under that, you're in bondage to sin and death. By contrast, verse 26 uses the imagery of a heavenly Jerusalem to speak of Sarah and her child who symbolized grace. Isaac was born according to promise, that is, according to the will of God and the ways of God, and the way of grace was efficacious to bring alignment with the will and ways of God, which was the way to freedom from sin and death. In verse 27, Paul quoted from Isaiah 54, and he said this, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the one who has a husband. Now the meaning of this text seems a bit obtuse. So I'm going to read to you what F.F. F. Bruce had offered as a commentary on this, a very short commentary. He said, the prophet Isaiah here is not contrasting two distinct women. He is rather contrasting the desolate Jerusalem, widowed and robbed of her children when Jerusalem, with Jerusalem as she was in the days of her earlier prosperity, and as she will be in the days to come when she will be more abundantly compensated for her losses. In other words, there was a day of glory for Jerusalem, and that day was when the children of Israel went into the promised land and Jerusalem became the capital. That was a great day of glory early on in the inheritance of the promised land. But as they stayed in the promised land, they abandoned God. They embraced the idols of the world and the ways of the world, and God's judgment on them was Jerusalem became desolate. Basically, the people were shipped out of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem was abandoned and became a desolate, run-down place. But God will restore that, and he did restore that through Christ, and there will be a new Jerusalem coming down from above, according to Hebrews 12 and the book of Revelation. That represents the victory of Christ and the the, the, the prevailing victory of the grace of Christ as opposed to the law. There was glory associated with the early Jerusalem as capital of Israel, the Old Testament ecclesia, but the glory was lost because of Israel's spiritual adultery. After the 70 years of captivity, there was a brief return to glory, but the luster was lost because fallen mankind could never meet God's standard of righteousness in his own strength. Consequently, the restoration was never completed. Israel continued in sin and desolation, even into the time when Jesus came. This illustrated that living under the law could never remedy total depravity. The only solution for man's totally depraved state would be the Jerusalem from above based on a different way of acceptance with God, and that is through the grace of Christ alone. Now Paul is going to apply this now in the final four verses of the chapter. This is Galatians 4, 28 through 31, so let me just quickly read that again. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman shall have no inheritance with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave but of the free woman. For the sixth time, Paul used the warm appellation brothers to convey his heart for the Galatians. The imagery of being 
children of promise like Isaac intimated the depth of the love and grace of God that emanated from the blessing of the unconditional Abrahamic promise. Living in this blessing was a stark contrast to living under the law, living as a slave to sin. The destiny of those who living under promise was the internal inheritance of eternal life to which those living under the law would have no part. Paul cited Sarah's directive to Abraham to remove Hagar and Ishmael from their home in Genesis 21 verse 10. Abraham was grieved by Sarah's attitude because Ishmael was his son as well. But he was not the son through whom the promise would be fulfilled. God directed Abraham to listen to Sarah and obey her, which he did. But Ishmael was Abraham's son, so he was blessed as well to become a nation. But he was not blessed as Isaac was and was not the one through whom the Abrahamic blessing to all the world would come. Ishmael mocked Isaac, Genesis 21, verse 9, perhaps because he knew that Isaac was Abraham's special son. Today, Ishmael's heirs, the Arab nations, continue to oppose Isaac's heir, Israel, and the Christian world. Spiritually, Ishmael represent and still represents those who live according to the flesh, and Isaac represents those who live according to the Spirit. The former live under the law as the basis for seeking acceptance with God, which will fail and always will fail, and the latter live under grace, the gift of acceptance which God, a gift of acceptance with God based on the work of Christ. And like Ishmael, those who live under the law will persecute those who live under grace. So it is today and always will be we will until the return of Christ. As a transition to chapter 5, which we'll cover start in next time, Paul concluded chapter 4 with this warm declaration. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. Chapter 5 will provide more clarity on the difference between living according to the flesh and living according to the spirit, or doing the will of God according to the ways of man, or doing the will of God according to the ways of God. Now I want to just talk briefly about a theological point and then make a quick application. Uh, the point I want to build on is hermeneutics. The book of Galatians has a lot to say about hermeneutics and how it was viewed uh, in the first century by the early apostles. And one of the points that you see here is the importance of, of internal consistency. If God is authentic to himself and the scripture is a revelation of God, then the scripture must be understood to be internally consistent. Therefore, the correct approach to biblical interpretation is a priori to assume that any seeming contradictions, any seeming inconsistencies in scripture can ultimately be explained congruent with other scripture. Now, that's a very important presupposition. If you don't make that presupposition, then you will find lots of texts and scriptures that will be perplexing, that will be difficult to understand, and you could very easily draw a wrong conclusion. You could conclude there is something wrong with scripture, that it is not uh, verbally inspired, that it's not plenarily inspired, that it is not inerrant and is not infallible. And that would be totally inconsistent with how the Christian church, uh, the Orthodox Christian church has understood it for 2,000 years. So internal consistency is a very important hermeneutical point. 
Paul explained that Christians can read the Old Testament with the expectation of learning lessons about the character and nature of God so that we can mature in Christ. In other words, the Old Testament can be understood congruent with the New Testament and vice versa. So Paul explained this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6. He said this, Now these things, referring to the Old Testament historical record, took place as examples or types for us that we might not desire evil as they did. In other words, we can learn lessons by looking at the Old Testament scripture. And for example, let me just show you an example of Old Testament typology from the life of King Jehoiachin, who was the last king of Judah, and he was went into captivity uh, in, in Babylon under the pagan kings of Babylon. And 2 Kings chapter 25, verses 27 through 30 is a very interesting picture here. In the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiachin, king of Judah, the 12th month, on the 27th day of the month, evil Merodach, king of Babylon, in the year he began to reign, graciously, hear that word graciously, freed Jehoiachin, king of Judah, from prison. And he spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat above the seats of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiachin put off his prison garments. See what he did? He put off his prison garments. His garments that represented slavery and bondage, he put them off so he could enjoy the freedom of being in the grace of the king. Jehoiachin was freed by the sovereign grace of the pagan king, and then to live in this freedom, he had to take responsibility to put off his prison clothes of slavery, which implied he put on the appropriate clothes to reflect his new position of freedom. This is a picture of the first two tenses of salvation. This is a type and illustrates the very thing that Paul is talking about. Could Jehoiachim have enjoyed that freedom if he had not taken off the prison clothes? You cannot sit at the king's table in prison clothes. It would not be allowed. You had to take them off. What a great picture of what we need to do in the process of sanctification. Freedom is given to us by grace through faith in Christ alone. And now we have to participate with the Holy Spirit and grow up and mature in Christ. Take off the slave clothes and put on the garments of royalty. So likewise, in Galatians 4, verse 24, Paul used Old Testament imagery to illustrate his teaching. In this instance, he used the word allegory to explain his interpretation. Now, sometimes an allegory is a fictitious story, such as in the book Pilgrim's Progress. But in this case, the word allegory, which only occurs one time in the New Testament, is translated uh, in such a way that it appears he's talking about a type or an illustration or example. This is what F.F. F. Bruce concluded in his commentary. To explain the New Testament gospel of salvation by the gospel of the grace of Christ, Paul used Old Testament typology. Living according to the flesh was seeking to do God's will according to man's ways. That was slavery to sin and death. The Old Testament typology for this reality was Hagar, a slave, Ishmael, the slave's son, who was illicitly born and was not born according to promise, Mount Sinai, which is the place where the law was given. The Old Covenant, which represented the old way of obedience to the law. And the earthly Jerusalem, which represented the capital of the earthly inheritance. Living according to the Spirit was 
freedom from sin and death, and it's seen in the Old Testament typology of Sarah being Abraham's wife and a free woman, and Isaac being the son of promise, and the new covenant built on the grace of God through Christ, and the heavenly Jerusalem, which is not and never will be in desolation like the earthly Jerusalem has been. Paul's conclusion in Galatians chapter 4, verse 31, was that we are not children of the slave woman Hagar, but of the free woman Sarah. This illustrates the difference between the commonly held first century Old Testament view of salvation by works and the New Testament truth of salvation by grace. Ishmael, the son of Hagar, represented the failed attempt to fulfill the Abrahamic promise according to man's ways. Isaac, the son of Sarah, represented God's supernatural provision to fulfill his promise. Like Ishmael, the Old Testament covenant of the law was a failure because it was based on mankind and mankind's efforts then to effect his own salvation, which can never work. And like Isaac, the gospel, the grace of Christ was and always is and will be God's way of salvation through the new covenant. The key lesson is that God's will is to be done God's ways. Now, quick application. The story of Ishmael and Isaac illustrates the difference between seeking to fulfill God's will according to our ways rather than his ways. Given that God always has a way for his will to be executed, true followers must learn how to discern not only his will, but his ways. Now, according to Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, Paul explained that to discern God's will, one must be in the process of transformation, transformation of our mind, how we think. Our worldviews have to be transformed to increasingly think as God thinks. Having discerned the will of God on a matter, one must seek to do God's will according to God's ways. That is according to his principles. Scripture provides many divine principles and precepts to help us align with the ways of God. These principles include such concepts as the golden rule, equal yoking, C4, stewardship, the divine problem-solving methodology of ask, seek, knock, sowing and reaping, under-promise and over-deliver, servant leadership, God pays for what he orders, etc. We could list scores of principles that we find in Scripture that we need to follow, and these are ways of God. These are ways that we fulfill the will of God. True disciples of Christ must learn how to discern the will of God and how to fulfill God's will according to his ways. It's easy to default to the era of Sarah and Abraham who knew God's will but sought to fulfill God's will immorally, that is, according to their own ways. Their action produced Ishmael through Hagar. Ishmael was not the vessel to fulfill God's promise, and Ishmael was and continues to be an enemy of Christ and his lineage. God's chosen way was Isaac. Followers of Christ, the spiritual descendants of Isaac, enjoy the promised Abrahamic blessing, but are negatively impacted by the enemies of Christ, that is, the spiritual descendants of Ishmael. There are always consequences when one seeks to fulfill the will of God illicitly or according to his own ways or according to the flesh. This truth applies to both individuals and organizations. So let's just consider an example from organizations. Strategic plans for organizations must be prayerfully discerned, both in terms of the plan, that is God's will, and the ways of executing that plan. This includes 
concern, this includes not only the strategic plan, but the tactical details as well. The process of clarifying both strategic and tactical plans is a management team exercise that requires much prayerful discernment and scriptural insight. The details of whom to serve, the exact nature of the value proposition, the means and methods of delivery, the timing and the location must be wisely discerned. And throughout the planning and execution, the teams must be humble, submitted, and teachable. In the final analysis, the measure of success is not profit, but degree of discernment of the will of God and the degree of alignment with the ways of God. In other words, success is the right people doing the right things for the right people in the right way at the right time in the right place for the right reason. And God alone is a definer of what right is in every situation and profit is simply a byproduct. May the Lord give us grace to learn to walk by the Spirit and to resist the temptation to walk by the flesh in Jesus' name. Amen.